0: ask the Lord this morning to open our eyes and to touch us and to make us whole this morning in his presence. Acts 20 is our sermon text this morning, Acts 20, and picking up at verse 17 down to the end, uh, verse 38. Now from Miletus, he sent, he meaning the Apostle Paul, to Ephesus and called the elders, I'll come to that, of the church, to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them. So here's Paul's address to the Ephesian elders. You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time, from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable, And teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, or in the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonments and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value now, uh, nor as precious to myself, Take careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after him. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years... that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful, most of all because the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. And to all these words, God's people say, amen. Amen. Well, three years doesn't seem like a long time. Uh, Three years doesn't really seem like a a whole lot of time to do a whole lot of anything, uh, perhaps, to us. But that was the length of Paul's longest ministry or service to these early church plants, throughout uh, the ancient world in the first century. He was there for three years in Ephesus, and he testifies to us of that here uh, in this story. It was his longest ministry in one place, just three years. Maybe that seems like a long time, well, in comparison to some of the times he spent in other cities, like Thessalonica for three Sabbath days, three weeks. Uh, this is three years, and so uh, it may not seem very long to us, but in the time of the apostles' ministry, uh, it was his longest and most lengthy ministry Uh, three years I was trying to think of a way to uh, to remember how long three years is three years was the beginning of uh, the first summer of corona time for our kids to today the first uh, that first summer of uh, our kids being out of school uh, perhaps they still had to continue to school at home but our our kids at least were out of school uh, and uh, trying to find find figure out what we were supposed to do uh, and that was three years ago. So it seems like a million years ago to us, but it uh, seems pretty close as well. So uh, three years can be a long time, relatively speaking. It can be, can be a very short time. Well, here, Paul, at the end of that three-year ministry, he's traveled some as well, but he's come back to uh, Miletus, and he's called for the elders to come from Ephesus because that great riot that happened there, and so he felt it was dangerous to go back to Ephesus. Uh, He passes by Ephesus, but he calls their elders, and he's concluding here in chapter 20 his third and final missionary journey. His third and final missionary journey. Um, We might say, though, that he really had four missionary journeys. We talk about his three missionary journeys, and this is the end of the the third missionary journey. Uh, But after he goes to Jerusalem, where where does he go after that? He goes to Rome. Uh, And on the one hand, we might say, you know, Paul and the church in Antioch and uh, they had planned and, and, and purposed for Paul to go out and with Silas and Barnabas and others, Timothy, to go out and spread the gospel. And so they had three very definite and distinct journeys and missionary tasks and endeavors uh, to do that work. But Paul goes to Jerusalem knowing that something's going to happen to him. The Holy Spirit had intended, we'll come to this, but the Holy Spirit had planned for him to get to Rome, to bring the gospel to the very hearts of the world, at least uh, as they conceived of it in those days, the very heart, the very center of the Roman Empire uh, of the world. And so there was a fourth journey that was awaiting him, and he was as well going to do missionary work there. And we've even seen his letters that even some from Caesar's own household, his own sphere of influence, uh, came to know the Lord through that missionary journey of being in chains. So he closes this third missionary journey, uh, but before he does, he summons the leadership in Ephesus. And there's so much for us to learn here. Uh, it's very important for us, a very, uh, very famous, very important passage or chapter, a section in the book of Acts, uh, the New Testament. It's very important for us this morning as well to learn the lessons of what Paul wanted those Ephesian leaders to. To learn too. It reminds us of that saying that uh, those who uh, forget the past, they are, what? are doomed to repeat it. And so let's listen to the past and learn from the past uh, missionary work of Paul and his advice and his summons, his urgent word, his urgent appeal to the Ephesian elders that we are, uh, are wise and we are not going to be doomed to repeat. Uh, Their failures. So, first of all, you see here, uh, Paul in this address, uh, it's not really a sermon, but it's just an address. Uh, uh, They're there gathered together in Miletus, and he gives a chronicle of his earthly ministry. He recounts in verse 18, uh, the latter part of it, uh, to verse 27, all the work that he's been doing amongst the Ephesians uh, or in Ephesus. So a chronicle of his earthly ministry. And you see various aspects of Paul's ministry uh, and Paul's work there. You see the nature of it, the, uh, the quality of it, the, the essence of his ministry. He describes it there in verse, verses 18 and 19 where he says, I lived among you. I lived among you serving the Lord with all humility, with tears, and with trials. I lived among you. The nature of his ministry was to live amongst the Ephesians so that they would not only hear his words, but they would, but they would see his life. And so that's why he tells Timothy in 1 Timothy, Timothy was the, uh, the, the, the missionary pastor left behind in Ephesus, he tells him to, uh, to keep watch not just over his doctrine, but also over his life that you are to live amongst, he says to these Ephesian leaders, to live amongst, just as I lived amongst you. That's why in historic Christian churches, especially in Protestant churches, uh, ministers uh, in the old days, and sometimes in in the new days too, uh, when church buildings are built, there's always a house that's built right next to uh, the church. And so uh, we call that a manse or a parsonage, uh, the pastor's house. Uh, it's really a fishbowl, isn't it? Uh, it's really a fishbowl, so I, I count myself to be blessed to live a tad bit away. We don't have our own building, but uh, a tad bit away, but, some, uh, but, but in many respects, of course, amongst us, uh, not living in that little fishbowl. But uh, li- we live amongst, as, uh, as Paul says, and to do so with all humility. He told the Ephesians, in, Eph- uh, in Ephesians chapter 3, that he was the least of all the saints, but yet he was called out by God and he was gifted with grace so that he might preach to them the gospel. So he described himself as the least. So we are to live and move and have our being as leaders, as those uh, who are to, to guide and direct the flock, the church that God's given to us, to do so with all humility, with tears and trials. He describes there how pastors are humans too, with tears and trials. And you see that in verse 31 where, Uh, where he describes that very thing that he did not cease night or day to admonish every one of you with tears. So the nature of his ministry was to be amongst, to be with them, uh, not just as an apostle who uh, could do the miraculous, but to be amongst them. Notice the content of his ministry, uh, verse number 20, where he says, I did not shrink from declaring to you. So to say did not shrink that's a, that's a state it in a negative. How would you state that in a positive kids, if you were to, to do some English literature uh, today or your, your English homework, I did not shrink. That's a negative. But what's, a, what's, the, what's the positive of that? I did not shrink from declaring to you means what? You didn't shrink, but you were? Bold, right? You're bold. He you stood up. And he proclaimed the word. I did not shrink. I stood up from declaring to you anything that was profitable in teaching you in public and from house to house. Uh, A ministry is a service. It's being an instrument. Paul describes it elsewhere as being a jar of clay. He says, we ministers are jars of clay. And in that jar, God has put this inestimable treasure of the gospel, but in a jar of clay. Ugly, fallible, frail, breakable, and so forth. So, a ministry is service. It's being an instrument. It's, it's conveying the message of the king. And the content then of his ministry was to declare, notice, and to teach. To declare and teach what? Notice the, the heart of it is in these various phrases in this address. Declaring and teaching what? To testify, verse 24, to testify of the gospel, the good news, of the grace of God. That right there is the content in the heart of the Christian ministry. To testify of the gospel, the good news, of the grace of God. God's grace is his is uh, not only, as we sometimes say in, in simple ways, his unmerited favor, his unmerited love. We've done nothing to earn or deserve grace, his love, his mercy, his favor. But do you realize that the grace of God is not just that you've done nothing to earn it, and so it is a gift that God gives unconditionally. But do you realize that grace is also given to us, to you and to me, Because we've demerited it. It's unmerited favor. We've done nothing good to earn the love and the mercy and the grace of God. In fact, we've demerited it. We've done everything possible to forfeit it. That's what it means to be a sinner. It means that we've broken God's covenant. We've violated his laws. We've transgressed his commandments. We've, as the Old Testament says, sinned with a high hand against God. We've sinned against God, knowing full well His judgment. Or we sin trying to hide and, and trying to pretend that God's not really here, that God doesn't really see. The gospel, the ministry of the gospel, the ministry of the good news, is that we come and we testify as ministers, and we do this even as believers as well, don't we? We tell people that God in Christ is gracious. You have done nothing to earn or deserve the gospel of Jesus Christ, and in fact, you've done everything to forfeit it. That's why it's gracious. That's what it means for God to be gracious. He does not come and, as Jesus said, I did not call, uh, come and to call the righteous. I came to call sinners. He did not come to gather up to himself all the good and all the holy and all the righteous and all those who have distinguished themselves by some way or another from everybody else in the world, and the good people are the ones who get to go to heaven. And the bad guys, the bad girls, they, they all have to go to hell. The gospel is that everyone deserves hell, but yet God comes and he brings salvation to undeserving, fully uh, fully forfeiting sinners. That's the gospel, amen. That's the gospel. And so he he tells the Ephesians, I I didn't shrink from declaring this to you. I was bold to testify of the gospel of the grace of God. The gospel of the grace of God. And woe to us as pastors and leaders if that's not the heart of our message. The gospel of the grace of God. Of God, even when we're preaching the Ten Commandments, we'll get to that eventually in our second service here uh, this year, as we're going through the uh, the basic basic of the Christian faith. We'll come to the Ten Commandments at the very end of that, and uh, the Lord's Prayer as well. But we'll come to the Ten Commandments, and even when we have to say, "Brothers and sisters, friends, God commands you not to murder," and here are the, here are the ways that you've murdered. You're a sinner. You're a filthy, rotten sinner. Even when we have to say that, we must always say next, but God. The gospel of the grace of God. Proclaiming verse 25, he says. He summarizes this this message, this content of his ministry, not just the gospel, the grace of God, but also proclaiming the kingdom. All the way back in chapter 1 when the disciples gathered in that upper room and Jesus uh had was was commissioning them uh he was telling them that uh the king or they were asking Lord is is now the time for the restoration of the kingdom and Jesus said it's not for you to know go and proclaim the gospel go and testify to all the world be be my witnesses in Jerusalem Judea Samaria and to the ends of the earth we proclaim the kingdom That this gracious God saves sinners who become citizens of his heavenly and eternal kingdom and that he himself is the king. And and, and the gates of the kingdom are wide open to all sinners. The the gate is open. The drawbridge is down. The way from sin into salvation is available to everyone. Come. That's the message. Come. Come. Enter the kingdom. Be saved and be safe from all your sins by the king. He welcomes sinners. I did not shrink, he says, verse 27, from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. What's the content of his ministry? He describes it also this way. The whole counsel of God. We might put it in these terms, that we are to preach as ministers. We are to preach the whole counsel from Genesis to Revelation. We are to preach the doctrine of God and all the way to the doctrine of the end things. The whole counsel of God. This is why we preach as we, as we do. We, we spend time going through books of the Bible one by one. Here we are in chapter 20. We only got eight chapters to go. What are we going to do next? Who knows? The Lord knows. But we will be in the word of God. After that 28th chapter is closed, I guarantee you that we'll be in the word of God, right? We'll be in the word of God Somewhere. Preaching the whole counsel of God. This is why we do expository sermons. This is why we preach the Bible, book by book, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. But it's also why we take time, we spend time uh, giving uh, sort of the the bird's eye view. We don't want to just emphasize and focus on the trees, but also the entirety of the forest. And so we use things like the Heidelberg Catechism or the Apostles' Creed, or we might do a a series on, on various key doctrines of the faith. In other words, the whole counsel of God is... Not just the profundity of all that God has ever said in his word, but also the simplicity of it. You see that there when he says in verse number 21, that the, the, the emphasis, the focus was on repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. We had to preach the whole counsel of God, and that can feel overwhelming to us at times. There's a lot to, to hear. There's a lot to know. There's a lot to learn. The Bible's a big book. So we try to go from the beginning to the end as best we can Uh, during the life that God has given us as ministers. We try to do that, but we also need to preach that simplicity. Repentance and faith. What's the whole Bible about? We read from Ezekiel where the Lord recounts the Israelites and God gave them commandments in the wilderness. Don't follow the idol of the nations. They did that. What was the point? That they would turn away from their sins and know that I'm the Lord, the Lord said. To turn, repent, and to believe. That's the, that's the key. We proclaim the gospel throughout the, whole of the, the entirety of the counsel of God that announces a kingdom is coming and the door is open and we come with repentance and with faith. We come humbly to the king and we confess our sins and we come embracing his offer of grace and mercy. The gospel is profound, but it's also simple. Notice the method. The method of his ministry, very very simply there in verse 21, was teaching in public and from house to house, anywhere, anytime. In public and from house to house. Teaching them, notice, teaching them. The scope of his ministry, he was testifying, verse 21 again, testifying to both Jews and Greeks. In other words, everyone, anyone. We are to preach the gospel. We are to proclaim the kingdom has come. We are to, to, we are to speak of repentance and faith from the whole council of God, uh, anywhere, anytime, to anyone. That's what Paul is saying here. In the end of his ministry, he says again, verse 22, I'm going to Jerusalem. He's, he feels compelled by the Holy Spirit. Now, what's going to be interesting next Sunday, Lord willing, is uh, he, he's compelled by the Holy Spirit to go to Jerusalem knowing what's awaiting him. But then we're going to read in chapter 21 that people were telling him by the Spirit, in the Spirit, not to go. So what gives? What was the Spirit saying? What was he wanting? What was he doing? Well, he feels compelled. He says that to us here. Compelled by the Holy Spirit to go to Jerusalem, to bring the offering of the Gentiles to the Jerusalem church, to relieve those in suffering, to relieve those in famine, uh, but to do so even knowing the dangers. So in all these things, we might say the application of what Paul is saying here, of his own earthly ministry, as he recounts it to the Ephesian elders, they knew this full well, but we're hearing this secondhand, uh, but the, the application of it is this, to follow the leader. Kids, we play follow the leader sometimes when we're little. Uh, we learn how to do things by following the leader. Uh, we might even go to a park and you'll see a duck and it's leading its ducklings into the water or it leads them out of the water to go find some food or to find some shade or, or something else. We follow the leader because that's how we learn in life to mature and to grow up. And so Paul is telling the Ephesian elders, and we need to learn this too, to follow the leader, to follow those that God has given to us. Now, notice to whom he's saying this. That's the second big point here. He gives a charge to these presbyters. They're called presbyters or elders. He calls for them in Ephesus. They come to Miletus and he gives his message. Now, this charge, this message, this urgent word that he gives to these men, these presbyters, notice they're called on the one hand elders, or presbyters, you see that at the very beginning of our reading this morning, verse seventeen, he called the elders of the church. That's the, the Greek word for it comes in English as presbyter, presbyteros. That's the office that these men hold. They are presbyters, uh, and uh, in in in, uh, in the ancient world, uh, that meant an older man, uh, but the idea was one who was an honored leader one who was an honored leader. It literally meant an older man, but uh, it comes into Christian parlance as meaning an honored leader. This is why Paul tells Timothy, don't let people look down on you because of you. Timothy is the missionary pastor in Ephesus, and he's a young man, but yet he's also called a presbyter. He's called an old man. He's not literally old, but it means that he's a wise man. He's a studied man. He's a godly man. He's a man who is to be honored as the leader of that church. And so they're called elders here, verse 17. But then notice as well, as he goes on to address them, verse 28, he tells them uh, to pay careful attention to yourselves, to all the flock, which the Holy Spirit has made you overseer. That's the word that comes into English as bishop. Uh, This is the episkopos, the one who looks over. That's literally what it means. One who's above and who's looking down. Who's looking upon. In other words, a watchman. A watchman. That's the duty of a presbyter. The presbyter is the office. Because, again, you can, you can be an older man, or you cannot be an older man, like Timothy, but you still hold the office of elder, presbyter. And your task, your duty, is to be an overseer. A watchman a bishop, as sometimes it's translated. Now, in the, in the, uh, amongst the Jews, of course, they had their Sanhedrin. That's their ruling council of men. And all throughout the gospel stories, we read about there are three categories of men who make up the Sanhedrin, the council, the rulers of the Jewish people. The chief priests, the scribes, and then who else, do you know? The chief priests. The scribes and the elders. The elders. So the, those are the three categories of men who made up the ruling council of the Jewish people. Now, later on in in, our, in, in the scriptures, as the gospel begins to uh, go out, we saw back in chapter 15 of Acts uh, that there was that Jerusalem council. There was the controversy about the, the status of Gentiles in a Jewish church. And so Paul and Peter and James got up and spoke to that assembly. But who made up the leaders in that assembly? Well, we were told that it was the apostles and the elders of the church in Jerusalem. So the language of elder carries over from uh, from the Old Testament people of God. It goes all the way back to uh, Exodus 18, in fact, where God tells Moses that, because you are overworked, appoint 70 men, 70 elders, To assist you. So there there, there were the apostles and the elders. Now, the apostles don't live on forever. And so that's why Paul has to tell, uh, for example, in in 1 Timothy, again, writing to Timothy in Ephesus, uh, he, he speaks of elders or presbyters, and some are to be regarded with double honor because they teach. There are others who don't teach, but they're still called presbyters, they're still called elders, they're still called leaders. Those who are to be given double honor, those, some, some people call them teaching elders, uh, these are the ministers or the bishops. And I told the brothers at our men's group this past week that when I was ordained, uh, Dr, Dr. Godfrey told the congregation uh, when I was ordained that you are to call Danny a bishop. So there you go. <laughs> that was a long time ago, but it was a long time ago. That's the, the task of the presbyter, the, the elder, the leader, is to be an overseer. Uh, again, a, a, as a minister of the gospel, to be an overseer or to be a bishop, uh, to be one who brings the word, who does that, uh, that work of teaching, and so therefore is to be given that sense of double honor. Uh, and, and notice the attitude of these elders that Paul is here charging uh, the elders, the overseers, notice that those are the same group of people, they're interchangeable there. Uh, to care for, to care for, and the, and the root of that word, to care for, is the root of the word for a shepherd. To care for, to, to literally to shepherds, is what it says. That's the attitude. That's the attitude of a presbyter slash overseer, watchman, bishop. Jesus is the good shepherd. I am the good shepherd, John 10. That means that the leaders underneath Jesus are under shepherds. I'm the good shepherd, we're just small s shepherds. Our task is to care for and to shepherd the flock that the Lord has given to us in the name of the king, the name of the chief shepherd, the chief bishop, of our souls, the Lord Jesus Christ, and notice how we are to do that. He says to do all this as elders uh, who oversee uh, by shepherding. We are to do this, he says, by paying careful attention. Pay careful attention. There, that's the imperative verb here, and to be alert. Pay careful attention. Be alert. These are the commands. What's the urgency of Paul to these Ephesians that they would? Pay careful attention. Be vigilant. For what? For, interestingly, for yourselves, he says. And to all the flock. Pay careful attention, he says, to those leaders. To yourselves. Again, he told Timothy in, in, in 1 Timothy, I believe it's in chapter 2, uh, that he is to, or chapter 4 actually, he says that he is to uh, guard, not just his doctrine, but keep a careful watch over his life. And so great men of the past, like C.H. Spurgeon, have written, uh, uh, there's a great address, you can, write, you can read it online. I would encourage our elders and uh, deacons and all Christians, in fact, uh, to go online and read C.H. Spurgeon's The Ministers Self-Watch. It's, it's addressed to pastors or students who are going to be pastors, but The Ministers Self-Watch. Brothers and sisters, you need to pray for your leaders. You need to pray for me, but pray for the elders, and pray not just for us in this church, but pray for Christian leaders. We are to be self-vigilant, self-watchful, because the temptations are great. The needs are great. So he's addressing, Paul, the apostle, is addressing the Ephesian presbyters, but it applies to all of us. Be in prayer. Help your pastor, help your elders to be watchful over themselves and to all the flock, he says. He emphasizes emphasizes that with more uh, more words. To all the flock. To all the flock. That was obtained by the Lord's own blood. In fact, he calls it, he says, he speaks of the blood of God here. Speaking to us in a a very improper way. Uh, But he's speaking here of the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, the God-man, He's paid the price with his own blood, the blood of God, to gather a flock. And leaders, our elders in this church, are to pay careful attention. I am to pay careful attention to myself, but also to all the flock, by pasturing and protecting. Notice that. By pasturing the flock and by protecting the flock. A shepherd's job as a children is to take, uh, take the sheep out and to take them out onto the hills and to find a place where there's a little bit of grass left and, and to, uh, to give them food and to lead them and to find those still waters and to find those little grass patches out there in a very hot, hot desert. Imagine living out in the desert and you have a whole flock of sheep and they have to eat and drink water every single day to survive. So the, his job was to pasture his sheep to feed them to feed them and to protect and to protect i should say what what is the what does the what is the what is the presbyter here the the overseer the shepherd who is to pay careful attention to the flock what are we to pasture you on what is the pasture that we are to bring you out to and To give you food. The word. The word. Jesus talks about himself being the the good shepherd, of course, and uh, he, he speaks of the word, the word as our food. The word is the bread of life. All kinds of images, but here it's the grass. It's the pasture land, the field. That's the food that we are to feed you with, the food of the word, and we are to protect you," he says to them. "You are to, pre- to protect your flock, and we are to protect our flock against fierce wolves. There are there are wolves outside, and so children, if you uh, if you Google what a shepherd is, I don't think we have many shepherds in the congregation this morning, but if you would Google what a shepherd does, uh, you'll see that a shepherd has a stick, a staff, uh, and not only leads with that staff at the front and they all follow, but he also uses that staff if necessary as a weapon as a weapon to ward off to fight off wolves we have coyotes around here but wolves that are trying to find a quick and easy meal to find a stray believer a stray believer who's just just straying enough from the flock to pick him or her off There are fierce wolves outside, but notice there are also men from within. He warns them. There are going to be men from within who are going to speak twisted words, trying to draw away the disciples. Let's turn in our Bibles to Ephesians 4. Here's what Paul wrote later to that very same church. What he he told them was going to happen, happened. Ephesians 4 Notice he says there, at the beginning at verse 11, speaking of the Lord, that uh, he's ascended and he's given the church apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds. There's that word. Shepherds and teachers to equip the saints to the work of ministry uh, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain the unity of the faith to the knowledge of the Son of God. Notice that's the purpose of the ministry is that we would all together have a unity of faith. Not listening to those twisted words of those within, trying to allure us outside. Notice that, so then, uh, to build up, again, verse number 12 there, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain the unity of faith and knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood. To mature manhood. To the measure, the stature, the fullness of Christ. Why? Verse 14, so that we may no longer be children. We are to be mature, no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves, and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. The time is coming, he says, when there are going to be from amongst your own flock not wolves out, but f- amongst the sheep, false sheep who are going to speak twisted words and trying to get your faith to be blown about like a like a ship on the sea confusing you causing you to become sick i took dax out fishing recently and i got seasick for the first time no bueno <laughs> no fun at all no fun at all that's what false doctrine does it causes us to be upset it, it causes us to be sick it causes us to be confused and not be able to Uh, to focus on the task in hand and even to make it to shore human cunning, craftiness, deceitful schemes. And so the Lord speaks to you and to me today and and he calls upon us to receive the good food that is prepared for us from the word of God. And there are going to be times where I and the elders are going to have to say, you know, that food over there is spoiled food. That food over there is poisonous. Don't eat it. Don't eat it. Receive the good food. Avoid the bad food. Pay careful attention. Be alert, he says. Be alert. Again, if you turn to First Timothy, this is Paul's letter to Timothy who was in Ephesus. And so Paul wrote and spoke about Ephesus much in his ministry. In 1 Timothy chapter number 4, First Timothy. Caden says I can't say one Timothy. It's First Timothy, right? <laughs> First Timothy. First Timothy. Uh, chapter 4. Notice. Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter time some will depart from the faith. By devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons, etc., etc. And the last times, the latter times, which began when? When did the latter times begin? The resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so it's. these are the last days. In fact, it's the last hour. And upon the horizon is that coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. The day of the Lord is near. In these last times, the Spirit of God says that some are going to depart from the faith, devoting themselves to deceitful spirits, teachings of demons. And again, he writes to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 4, quickly, verse 3 and 4, after telling him to preach the word... I might, we might begin there, verse 2. Preach the word, that's the food that the sheep need. That's the pasture land of us, the sheep. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching. For why? Because or for the time is coming when people will know. Uh, not endure sound teaching. That language of sound in your Bible, it's the language of healthy, healthful Healthful teaching, good for your body, good for your soul, literally. The time is coming when people will not endure sound or healthy teaching, that good pasture land upon which the Lord gives us his word, but having itchy ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions, and will turn away from listening to the truth, the word, the good ground, the good grass, the pasture land, and wander off into myths. That's what he charges these presbyters to do. Pay careful attention to yourself and to all those in the flock. Pasture them with good food. Protect them from bad food. Be alert because these are the times in which these things happen. They've happened since the times of the apostle. They're happening today. And finally he commends them to God, just briefly. And it's amazing and beautiful how he how he began and uh, as, as, I, as I mentioned there, he, he speaks of, uh, in verse 24, of the gospel of the grace of God. He chronicles his ministry. I proclaimed the gospel of the grace of God. And now he's commending this church to God. He's not going to see them anymore. That's why they're weeping. That's why they're tearful. That's why they're sorrowful. That's why they're sad. They're no longer going to see them anymore. And so like, he says, I commend you, notice, I commend you to the word of his grace. The same God who in his grace gave to us undeserving and fully forfeiting sinners his love and his mercy. The same grace that has caused us to be born again. The same grace that has given us Christ's righteousness, that's justified us. The same grace that has saved us. That's the same grace that's going to continue to preserve us. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace. That's the word that you need to hear. The word of God's grace. Why? Because notice, God's grace does not just, you know, save us once and for all and we kind of go our merry way. That's how so many Christians today think of salvation. And somehow, sometimes we give that sense that that's really what it's all about. You know, just get saved. No, he commends these Christians, these leaders, to the word of God's grace. Why? Because it's able to build you up, to continue in grace, to build you up, and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I was going to read, but I'll I'll leave it to you to do this as homework, if you will. Uh, Go read Ephesians chapter 1 and look at the language of, of inheritance. The the word of God's grace builds up, and it also gives. It gives the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. What's the inheritance? Go read Ephesians 1. The inheritance that's awaiting us. It's already ours, it's already yours, but you're going to have it one day. The gospel of God's grace gives that inheritance. And it preserves you until you get to experience and receive it and enjoy it in its fullness. And so here's Paul's ministry his ministry uh, to these Ephesian presbyters, overseers, shepherds, leaders. And he's writing, to, or he's speaking to them as written to us to learn from. Uh, the past, that we might not make the same mistakes, that we might continue to be built up and continue towards that inheritance. Notice all that Paul is saying about his own ministry and the ministry he passes off to these ministers to continue to minister to these Christians, and it speaks to us as well this morning, uh, it's all to bring us to God. God. All the words that we speak, all the preaching, all the teaching, all the visiting, all the spending time living amongst each other, going from house to house in public and so forth, it's all to bring us to receive that inheritance. That's what it's about, the inheritance that we have in our Lord Jesus Christ. We come this morning to the Lord's table, which, as I've been mentioning, or we've been mentioning the past few weeks in our second service, uh, this is all about uh, uh, an, an earthly sign to you of a heavenly reality. The inheritance that awaits you, you get just like a little a little taste, a little glimpse of at this table this morning. And so as the word of God's grace comes to you this morning, and God says to every single sinner in this place that the kingdom of God is here, The gate is open to that kingdom. Come with repentance and faith to Jesus Christ and you will receive that inheritance. And you get a little bit of of that this morning, a little glimpse, a little taste, a little down payment of what awaits us in that final, final place when we will see him face to face as he is and he will feed us with those leaves from that tree of life, the Bible says, which are for the healing of the nations. Let's come this morning to Jesus. By faith and repentance. Let's come to Him to this table of the Lord, expecting Him to renew us, to satisfy us, to fill us, to heal our souls. Let's expect Him to meet with us, that we would hear His voice from His mouth to our ears, and we would see Him face to face. Let's pray. Our great and our gracious God, we thank you for the gospel of Jesus that comes to us, undeserving sinners. And we thank you for the lessons of Paul to the Ephesian church. And we thank you that you have, uh, throughout the ages, preserved this wonderful word of the gospel. We get to hear it today that God loves sinners. That you are gracious towards those who don't deserve. And you are gracious towards those, Lord, who forfeit. You are gracious. And so we thank you, Lord, and we ask now that you would assure us of your grace in the Lord's Supper. Feed our souls, we ask, all this in Jesus' name, and together all of God's people say, Amen.